I'd like this evening to talk about and explore bringing our metta practice um, more fully into our daily lives. We sometimes uh, talk about this theme as how to enter the second half of our retreat. The first half ends about 11 a.m. tomorrow morning, and the second half begins then. So how to bring our metta practice into our everyday lives where there's more complexity at times, more speed at times, maybe uh, less silence at times. How to increasingly let our life and our practice be one. These are the words of the great uh, Tibetan uh, yogi, uh, Shabkar, who lived at the, uh, mostly in the 19th century. Let your life and practice be one. It's an aspiration. So before going into that theme, no, no, I don't want to say that. (laughs) Delete. (laughs) Continuing (laughs) with that theme, as is our tradition in this retreat, stories about the Dalai Lama. which are very much continuing with the theme because he, in many ways, manifests metta with considerable complexity in his life, right? Being a head of state, among others. So I'm actually going to tell three related stories that give a sense of what metta in his life, I think, if I would interpret that way, looks like. The first was told to me by my sister Liz, who was a graduate student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And to support her studies, she was uh, sometimes a waitress. One day, partly because Ann Arbor, I think, has a good Buddhist studies program, the Dalai Lama visited. (laughs) He visited Ann Arbor and he visited her restaurant. And she waited on them. (laughs) And she said they were just laughing and giggling. It was the Dalai Lama and a bunch of monks. And they were just laughing and giggling pretty much the whole time. (laughs) Okay. Um, Related to that, then going about uh, probably 15 years later, this is like 1998 or so, and I was at a conference, I think it was on nonviolence and spirituality, something like that. And the Dalai Lama was there, and he was giving a talk. And he had several points. He went over his first point, discussed it, went over his second point, discussed it. Then he went over his next point and discussed it. But he realized that he had jumped a point. And so he said, I covered point number one, point number two, 
Then I went to point number four. I made a mistake. Ha ha ha. There's a certain uh, lightness, and, and it actually relates to the, uh, the next story. Um, this was, uh, I was uh, staying for about seven or eight months at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts in 1979. And the Dalai Lama uh, came, I think, on one of his, if not the first visit to the United States. And he came to visit Insight Meditation Society. And it was interesting. There was like one or two security people. <laughs> it was interesting. And um, he spoke some. And he then uh, answered questions, which uh, were uh, read from cards that people had written down their questions on. And one person uh, said on the card, I don't think I deserve love. Please comment. He did not give a quick answer. He went back and forth in Tibetan, actually. His English is, is quite good, as you may know. And he went back and forth in Tibetan, probably for three or four minutes, back and forth, trying to make sure he understood the question. And then finally, in English, he blurted out, you're wrong, you deserve love. <laughs> Which was very un-Dalai Lama-like. <laughs> right? And uh, he later said that he was quite confused by the level of self-hatred that he found in the West. And he spent two years asking people about it and studying, talking with psychologists and so forth to get a better understanding of uh, what's there for many, if not uh, all of us, that kind of conditioning. So I think those are, for me, uh, wonderful manifestations, both of that quality of metta in action and also the uh, willingness to keep learning, which is, which is very much there for him. And I think that this question of bringing metta into our daily lives into our work, into our relationships, into our engagement with the world is actually a very fundamental question of our times. It's very much a personal question, but I think it's also a question of um, meeting the challenges of our times, bringing that quality of metta or love, compassion, equanimity into facing the great uh, challenges of our time. And I'll come back to that. You know, I was thinking again uh, in relation to Martin Luther King. He talked about the great uh, threats of our time as poverty, racism, and militarism. And we could probably we could add uh, climate disruption. And I think that the collectively we need these resources of metta, and I think all the Brahma Vihara. It's a very nice uh, set to really help us meet those challenges in various ways.
And I'll come back to that, come back to that point. So what I want to explore are really three aspects of bringing a metta into daily life. Uh, first, uh, in terms of our individual practice. Uh, secondly, in terms of our relational practice, our being with others. And thirdly, in terms of our larger participation in the world, our, our larger engagement with the world. And I want to um, focus especially on these suggestions and um, findings from kind of the collective experience of many practitioners. I want to offer those tonight. And then uh, tomorrow morning, uh, John will talk a little more directly about the immediate transition from the retreat, how to be skillful in these next hours, these next days. And there will also be some time tomorrow morning for questions about daily life practice and about uh, the movement from the first half to the second half of the retreat. So, a few uh, suggestions, first of all, about individual practice. And some of these will be uh, familiar, and some of them will be uh, less familiar. I sometimes think about uh, how to support daily life practice by thinking about inner supports and outer supports. Inner supports would be our practice. Outer supports would be community, mentors, friends, and so forth. So I want to divide the exploration of individual practice in those two ways. So I think we've seen the value of retreat. There's something very powerful about uh, tasting possibilities, tasting possibilities of depth, having a relatively safe space to open up, to engage in the purification process. And uh, I suggest, as a practice, knowing when your next retreat is. But actually, if you, maybe some of you have done this, I find that it, something relaxes in me. It's partly a statement of priorities. This is important to me. And so knowing when the next practi- uh, time for retreat practice is, There's something about the cycle, as I mentioned by quoting the historian Toynbee, the cycle of withdrawal and return, which is immensely creative and can be very healing, very helpful. So finding time to do retreats, knowing when one's next retreat is. One practice is to engage in a kind of mini retreat once a week, a practice something like a Sabbath ancient tradition, East and West. I've been, do- I've been doing a Sabbath more or less one day a week for about 35 years. Makes a huge difference. It's a little bit like going into a retreat space once a week. And some people may do a whole day. Many people I work with, they do three hours or four hours. And it could be that you do some sitting, maybe do some reading, take a hike, but really have it be for you, what nourishes me. Could do it by oneself with one or two people. Um, Sabbath practice can really accelerate our practice. 
And also, uh, as many of you know who've worked with the Sabbath practice, maybe otherwise, when you have that regularly on the same day, it becomes the pivot of the week. And something in your being knows it's occurring. This is a time, of course, to uh, disconnect, you know, from the electronics, the telephones, all that. So again, it can be modest. It can be three or four hours. It doesn't have to be a whole day. It can be a morning, an afternoon. I've known people have done them Friday afternoons, for example, after a work week. Or it could be, you know, um, it could be any time. Could be a weekday. I know several people who do it weekdays. There's something very beautiful about that. Um, I found a, a poem that I just love so much. I just uh, someone sent this to me just a few days ago, and it's about this power of silence. And I, I wanted to read it. This is uh, just to remember this the beautiful quality of silence. This is from Thomas Merton, the great uh, Catholic contemplative. Uh, this is called In Silence. Be still. Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? Who? Be quiet, are you? As these stones are quiet, do not think of what you are still less of, what you may one day be. Rather, be what you are, but who? Be the unthinkable one that you do not know. Oh, be still while you are still alive, and all things live around you, speaking, I do not hear, to your own being speaking by the unknown that is in you and in themselves. I will try like them to be my own silence. And this is difficult. The whole world is secretly on fire. The stones burn, even the stones, they burn me. How can a human being be still or listen to all things burning? How can one dare to sit with them when all their silence is on fire? So the silence and the power of the silence may not be there in the same way in five days, but there's something that stays with you. You can trust that. When you come back to the silence, it's like greeting an old friend. When you come back next to, ah, I remember you. Yeah, hello. Many of us can use the momentum of the retreat to either establish, reestablish, or strengthen our daily practice. Often after metta retreats, people do mostly or exclusively metta for weeks or months. I did it once for six months. I just was really inspired to do metta and it was my main practice for for months, that's possible, that's fine. You may want to 
divide your sessions into half mindfulness and half metta or 10 or 15 minutes uh, metta at the end. There are different ways to practice. I think if you can stay in some way with 10 or 15 minutes metta a day, it will get strong and it will come into the rest of your life. Try to find that time. You can find it in different ways. Take a walk for 10 minutes and do metta. If I'm eating a meal by myself, at least once a day I try to do metta in that meal, at least for 10 or 15 minutes. So find ways to have that practice be there. One of the um, interesting ways to deepen daily life practice that I have found and been exploring, particularly in just the last few years, is finding five or 10 minute periods during the day where you can go to metta practice or maybe to mindfulness and that are somewhat ritualized, that you don't have to think about much. So, and this is a way to have uh, practice deepen because if you have like one session where you do 30 minutes And then a few times during the day, you have five or 10 minutes, the practice can really be there for you, can really come in. And so it's finding uh, a few five or 10 minute periods that uh, in some sense don't add time to your schedule. So I'll just name a few examples. One that I do is I do some knee exercises every day. They take about 10 minutes. I'm basic, they're very, they don't involve much activity. I'm basically sitting, with my leg extended, putting some, kind of massaging the knee in a certain way, it's practice time, (laughs) right? Uh, And then, you know, having uh, a meal where you're silent maybe for 10 or 15 minutes, do metta. Some people, it's the time walking from the vehicle to work. Maybe it's five minutes, but you do that, you kind of ritualize it. So it's not a matter of negotiation or choice. It's a little bit like brushing your teeth you know, assuming that's ritualized. (laughs) (laughs) Or something like that. Once I used to, after, when I could, after every lunch, I used to take a 10-minute walk. So that's what I mean by ritualized. You just do it. It's not a matter of should I do it or maybe I'll do it, but it's, it's get ritualized. And if you can have two or three periods like that, practice can really deepen. It's, really, it's interesting, really, you know, or some way to come back, some way to come back like that. Part of deepening daily practice is also to come back to uh, your understanding of what you're doing. This could be through reading or study or listening to talks. Just come back to your sense of an overall intention, overall purpose that might be related to looking at priorities. Sometimes people deepen daily life practice by, and something that comes up very much on retreats, is do I want to shift my priorities? How am I spending my time? You know? Again, not to be heavy-handed with it or judgmental, but we may want to say, I want more of this and less of this. And we may act on that. It's one of sometimes a fruit of retreats. 
to really have that sense of priorities. The Sufi poet Hafiz says, run my dear from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run my dear from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Sometimes that means as we deepen in practice, actually some relationships are less central or even end. It, it is that way sometimes. It can be disorienting, but it's, it happens like that sometimes. Find ways to have a, a regular gladdening of the heart in your day. It could be, you know, uh, connecting with beauty, taking walks, being with, being with the trees, being with, the, being with animals, being with children, whatever gladdens your heart to, to do that. This is one of my uh, favorite poems from uh, Mary Oliver. When I am among the trees. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, especially the beech, the oaks and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness, I would almost say they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself. Quite a statement, right, from a great poet. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. So we can be with the heart practices which resonate. We can be with mudita. We can be with the joy practice. We can find ways, maybe gratitude practice that can gladden the heart. Finding something like that, that we in a way connect with, uh, if possible, every day. Intention can play a big role in bringing our practice into daily life. We sometimes talk about meta practice as asking the question, am I coming from kindness right now? Where is my, where is my good heart right now? Mindfulness practice. And asking that question, maybe again, as we were doing in the speech practice, it could be to go into a meeting and say, I want to come here with my good heart. Remembering that the good heart can say difficult things. Right? But to work with intention before a meeting with someone, before uh, a gathering, before a challenging conversation, really to work with intention, very, very crucial to find ways to do that. Again, maybe the speech practices gave you some sense of that, of the power of intention, very, very central to our practice. Julia Butterfly Hill says, is this coming out of love with every action? Am I acting out of love? You know, you know who she is, the 
tree sitter in the big redwood called Luna. There's a way that when we work with intention, we can also bring that intention uh, in, even into difficult situations, that we can intend to bring the heart into challenging situations. There's a Tibetan phrase, take all obstacles as the path of practice. And there's a way in which our practice accelerates and it really needs a foundation, basic confidence, but at a certain point we can start saying, oh, a challenge. Guess I'm gonna learn something. <laughs> but we can actually have a more positive relationship to challenges rather than taking them simply as, oh, heck. <laughs> something like that. And the Buddha often taught about the importance of challenges. You don't really know the maturity of your practice unless you take on challenges. And sometimes, of course, we don't have choices, right? Challenges take on us. But reframing challenges with the intention to bring the heart to the challenge, one's heart to the challenge, can be very, very crucial. And there's the way that we've also talked in terms of individual practice of metta practice can be an antidote Sometimes when we are stuck, lost, overwhelmed, when the metta practice is strong enough, it can shift us out of that stuck place. Middle of the night, wake up, self-judgment, something didn't go well yesterday. We start getting down on ourselves. You can call on metta. If you've been practicing it daily, it should be strong enough. It can, because it's concentration practice, it has the power to shift us out of stuck places has a lot of power, as in my, my bear story <laughs> a few nights ago. And so it really can be used as antidote is really there when we feel stuck or lost or overly activated, trigger, overly triggered, overwhelmed. Okay? If we're in the workable range, we might use mindfulness. But if there's the antidote is relevant when we when the situation's not workable, when, we, when the wisest thing is to shift out of it. Very crucial uh, capacity. So we also want to find outer supports. You know, all of these practices, inner practices, could be called inner supports. And they're outer supports, such as being connected to community. I think it's too hard to try to do this entirely by oneself. There's really a value and an, almost a, a need for support from others and it can take many forms. It might take the form of being part of a community, maybe where you gather once a week. It could mean having a few friends that you check in with. Maybe you email. It really suggests maybe connecting with people here. Maybe there's someone here you want to stay connected with. We had an experience uh, uh, Heather and I, we taught a retreat in September called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. One person volunteered to send an email out to those interested, which was about half the people or maybe two-thirds of the people in the retreat, just connecting with the practice and being kind of a forum for people to stay connected and stay inspired by each other 
that was September, those once a week emails are still happening. Anyone wants to take initiative, leave something on the board, leave a, a sign-up sheet. Once out of this retreat about 10 years ago, someone volunteered to host a monthly meta gathering in San Francisco and followed by a potluck, you know? So we can be creative and find, find uh, ways to keep connected, keep supported. You know, the electronic media are quite good at that, right? You can send something uh, to someone that keeps you feeling connected, really crucial. Having a mentor or a teacher can play a very central role at a certain time, having that support. As you've seen here at the retreat, it can really be important at a certain point. And so you might want to, again, talk to someone here at the retreat and say, let's stay in touch. Let's stay connected, or a group of two or three. Maybe someone you met with earlier in the, in the speech practice. There are challenges in our everyday life, you know, and so again, sometimes we do need to make adjustments. We face the challenges of what? Busyness, being in a very, very mental culture, Sometimes a lack of support for taking care of oneself. Overwork. Even a lot of jobs have structured into them overwork. That's hard sometimes, you know, to, to uh, do well in those situations. So, how, so some of the issues may lead one to make shifts or make changes. Am I working too much? Is there an option? I love the way that the Brahma-vihara collectively are so helpful for all the different situations and to really remember the loving-kindness, the compassion, the joy, the equanimity. And there, you know, sometimes we may even find ourselves saying, oh, I'm feeling a little disoriented. Oh, let's do some equanimity or some compassion. And they're really so appropriate to be brought in. And again, I think the original context of metta all these are interrelated. They're all connected. Very, very crucial to remember. From the Tibetan tradition from the 14th century, Longchenpa, out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of karuna to be watered by tears of mudita under the cool shade of the tree of upeka. <laughs> and one of my former students said something very similar. He said it like this. When the mind is filled with thoughts that really aren't so useful, metta is better. <laughs> when you open up your heart to the sorrows of the world, you'll find karuna suna. <laughs> when you feel you can't share the joy of others' good fortune, remember mudita is sweeta. <laughs> when the winds of the world can't blow you astray, you've got heka upeka. Maybe one last thing to say about inner practice. We've emphasized the body some in our teaching of ways of keeping the metta embodied. And I emphasized it quite a bit in the speech practice. And there's a way that um, grounding further in the body 
can play a very central role with our development of metta. Heather talked quite a bit about the, the importance of grounding and connecting. So finding some ways over time to get further grounded in the body, aware of the body, that's kind of long-term, but very, very important. And there's another way that it's important that I, that I found personally, which is that I think I um, had a kind heart and sometimes it would lead me to feel quite vulnerable, probably similar to many of us. And I found that I could have a very kind heart, but that as, you know, initially I could easily be overwhelmed. Right? I could easily be knocked around. And I found that one of the keys to uh, working with that was to ground further in the body, number one, and particularly to develop more of a sense of center, you know, as in the martial arts around the, what's called the hara or the lower tantian in uh, Qigong, but to actually have this grounding and centering in the body. It's almost as if that was necessary to, uh, what, to balance and to be in connection with the open heart. Again, some of this is long-term, but if that resonates with you, you might find ways to work for greater embodiment and work with centering and practices like Qigong can be very wonderful in that way. And there are also meditative practices where one can really develop more of that, more of that center. So how to bring the metta practice into our relationships, including having partners who don't necessarily practice, (laughs) as was brought up not very long ago. So how to to do that? Uh, First of all, we can bring the metta practice, particularly through the version of metta for all beings, into all sorts of public places. We've talked about this some. We can bring metta for all beings, particularly in that radiating form, into meetings, into public transportation, even into driving. A lot of my students, a lot meaning maybe three or four, (laughs) uh, do metta when they're driving. Can just offer metta to drivers. You know, they have their safety features down, but they um, they can do that. They can... Uh, one can bring metta in. Metta is actually very uh, amenable to all sorts of daily life implementations. Meetings, you can do it like that. You can bring, bring it in, especially if you don't have a very active role. A meeting, uh, being in a public space, being in public transportation, um, and so forth. Uh, one practice that can be very interesting, which... which um, I've been working with for about 10 years, is bringing metta into emails. And this, this happened when I did a longer metta retreat, about, about five weeks of, of practice like we're doing. And towards the end, the last two or three days, I had to attend to something outside. And so I downloaded, like, um, not encouraging this, but I you know, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> I downloaded like 500 emails and started looking at them, but the phrases were going. No way they could be shut off. And so just naturally there evolved a practice where with every email message, 
I would do the phrases, at least four phrases with each message, and then try to bring the spirit of metta in some way into the message. Initially it was, I hope this finds you well. When I kept repeating that with a lot of people who I was in a lot of contact with, I had to vary it some to mitigate the possible dangers of uh, my metta messages leading to aversion. And it stayed, that, it stayed that way as a practice. You can do something, you know, we, vote, we wonder, how do you bring our practice into computers, right? Or texting, you can actually have a pause and do 30 seconds of metta and make that as a practice with every email. You could, it's possible, right? See how that changes things, right? Staying with the ethical precepts really makes a huge difference for metta. You know, to really have that sense of offering safety, as, as has been said. When we live with the precepts, we're really offering safety to ourselves and others, or relative safety. You know, in that line that uh, Heather mentioned, you know, of one who uh, loves oneself will not intentionally harm another very powerful. When we practice with the metta, it's very aligned with the precepts. And it's almost as if, especially as we develop more of that sense of interconnection, it's almost as if the left hand cannot hurt the right hand. It's a metaphor used in the tradition quite a bit. Speech practice, as we've seen, can really be a venue for metta practice to bring that sense of the intention to come out of the heart with one's speech can be quite wonderful. Some of you know there was some years ago uh, uh, a collection of uh, children's quotations about love. Probably a lot of you know this and I assume they're valid, you know, I don't know if some, you know, 75 year old woman in Schenectady, New York just made these all up. I'll, I'll assume that they're true, <laughs> you know. This, so here's one. This is from Billy, age four. Ask, what's the nature of love? He says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Might one's speech be like that, increasingly? And again, we can work with some of the suggestions from this afternoon to maybe work with the guidelines, you know, of being truthful, helpful, coming from a good heart, having good timing. One kind of uh, interpersonal practice which really brings forth the spirit of metta, I almost think of it as a further Brahmavihara, is the practice of empathy, you know, which, we, which we've talked about some. And it can be a way of tuning in to another person with a kind heart, just to listen for what's there, the pleasant, the unpleasant, just to be with that and to offer that. You know, one concrete way that I practice with empathy is to ask, what's the person feeling? What's the emotion there? And what matters for the person? Twofold empathy practice that one can bring into daily life and it changes everything. 
You know, because some, for a lot of us, we don't go to empathy naturally. Some of us do. But it's a practice where you can cultivate that sense of bringing the kind heart in an, intera- in an interactive setting. Well, I'm going to tell this story. This is from my, uh, my brother-in-law who, named Ron Smith, who uh, works in Berkeley with the homeless. And he told a story of uh, one of the people I think who he worked with was a former burglar. And then he himself was burglarized and suddenly empathy grew. (laughs) He said, oh yeah, I used to do that until I got burglarized myself. Then I felt violated. After that, I couldn't do that to others anymore. So again, we can work with challenges. Can we bring the sense of practice even to difficult people? Even to, can we keep our, can when a difficulty comes up or being with a difficult person, can I remember, turn all obstacles into practice? Can I say, oh yes, a difficult person. I remember January 16th. 2016, we did difficult person practice all day long. I remember that. Let's try it. But remember to gauge the level of difficulty first and see whether whether it's workable. It may not be workable. When it's not workable, use another strategy. There's also a way we can bring the metta practice into the wider world, into our lives, to meet the challenges of the world. And of course, uh, Dr. King is someone we remember especially, as he said, for bringing love into the public world. The philosopher and activist Cornel West says that love is the public face of justice. Interesting, right? No, no, I think he said, no. Justice is the public face of love. <laughs> I think love is also the public face of justice. So, so I said the latter. He said the first one. <laughs> so how do we bring in this sense of love into the world? And again, I think we can learn so much from, from Dr. King. And again, his, the celebration of his birthday is tomorrow. And he talked about it in all sorts of ways. He talked about having the means be as pure as the ends when one's acting. You can't get to what he wanted to get to the beloved society. He said, the end of all of our work is reconciliation. It's the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which brings about miracles in the heart of human beings. I thought I'll, I think I'll play a brief recording of Dr. King, really putting what he's saying into practice. This is a story from a talk that he gave on uh, working with judging, but it's a very short snippet of him talking about what happened when he went to Cleveland and met opposition. 
Okay. Should be on. Okay. I'll start again. Ready? movement, which we're going to get started next week, may have a brother there who is the leader of the nationalists, a little louder. the black nationalists of Cleveland, and he had announced the date for the riot to take place, first time I'd ever seen a, the date set for a riot, but Brother Ahmed announced the date for the riot. And they had pledged that they were going to run me out of town, that they were not going to hear anything about nonviolence, that if I came to Cleveland, they were going to run me out. So they were set to run me out of town. But when I got to Cleveland, I had a lot of speeches around the high schools and a number of other places. And I decided that I was going right on over to Huff and meet with Mr. Ahmed and his fellows, and I was going to speak to them and talk to them and brother. I got over there. They were ready to run me out. I didn't open my speech by criticizing them or judging them. I didn't stand up self-righteously and say, I'm nonviolent and you're violent. You believe in riots and you're killing the Negro race and hurting the cause of civil rights. I didn't start out like that. I started out saying, Mr. Armand, I understand your frustration. I understand your bitterness. I understand what you've gone through. I understand why you're reacting like you're reacting. And I put my arms around Brother Armit, and pretty soon Brother Armit had his arms around me. And I had my press conference the next day, and who was sitting at the press table but Mr. Armit? And the press said, now, Dr. King is talking about nonviolence, and he's talked about the movement that they're going to have here in Cleveland. Mr. Armit, since you believe in violence, what do you have to say about what Dr. King just said? He said, I want you to know I agree with him, and he's my leader, too. If I had gone in there cursing out Mr. Armit, if I had gone in judging and criticizing Mr. Armit, Mr. Armit would have been permanently separated from me. This is what Jesus is saying. Judge not for in your judging. You may judge yourself to be unkind, unsympathetic, unfeelingful, and unable to see the problems of others. And that leads me. Be great to listen rest of it. <laughs> but you can really hear that intention in practice, right? That intention, that's, a, that's advanced practice. That's advanced metta practice. And we can find ways to bring that into our engagement with the world. We can do that in large ways and small ways. That line, one who loves oneself will not intentionally harm another, to me, is a very powerful indication of how certain kinds of change may come about. That so much of the harm that's occurring is because of a lack of self-love, often produced by the society, right? And so someone who's dedicated 
to finding ways to have that metta be a force in people's lives is operating at a very, very foundational level to help uh, shift the world, to bring these qualities of metta into all sorts of situations, families or schools or the way one does medicine or the way one works. I think that's something invited of us to find ways not just to have that practice be individual, but bring it into one's work in the world. See how to do that. See how to make that happen. Maybe just to finish with a few, with one story and I think uh, maybe two readings. You know, we, we've, we've looked at how, as we practice more, metta moves from being a doing to the way we are. We move from doing to being, and metta increasingly becomes who we are. And we have to practice to remember who we are. We forget who we are. We get lost and we can come back. And a lot of the ways that we will impact the world are simply by our being, or simply by how we are. Think of how you remember the people who have influenced you. And you may not remember any particular incident, but you remember how they are, how they were. This is a story that I heard from my mother. Um, it's a story about a woman named Shirley Chisholm. How many of you know of Shirley Chisholm? Yeah. Um, She was a congresswoman from New York. Um, I met her um, probably a number of times because when I was like 18, I worked in the US Congress for a summer as an intern. And uh, she was in Congress at that time. And she later ran for president, 1972. First uh, African-American woman to run for president Maybe the first woman, I don't know. Don't know. And I heard this story after she died. Some of you know that uh, also in the 1972 presidential race was uh, George Wallace, who was the former governor of Alabama, who was an arch, uh, we would say, segregationist. You know, it was really part of that... Um, massive resistance to equality that was happening uh, and is still happening. Some of you know that uh, during that campaign, there was an assassination um, attempt on Wallace's life. And he was shot. And he, I believe, uh, actually was uh, paralyzed partly and lived in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And Shirley Chisholm uh, went to visit him in the hospital. First thing he said was, your people aren't going to like that you're visiting me. Her response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. 
And something happened in that visit. I would like to think it's the force of metta. Because a short time later, Shirley, Shirley Chisholm was trying to get a, a minimum wage bill through the Congress. George Wallace helped her by lining up Southern Congress people. And some of you also know that he, not so long after that, started repudiating his racist past. I'd like to think that that very simple act of metta had that power to help that shift occur. I don't know. I'd like to think that. I think I'll finish with um, a little bit different note. <laughs> this is, this is uh, from one of my favorite books. This is from a book called The Book of Qualities by Ruth Gendler. How many of you know this book? At least a few. Maybe more in a moment. And so this is, Ruth Gendler is a poet and an artist who is a friend of mine and actually lives around the corner from me. And this is, uh, this is from her book, The Book of Qualities, in which she personifies like about 50 different human emotions and mental states and turns them into people, gives them genders and so forth. So there's, in the book, there's pleasure, worry, fear, patience, imagination, pain, compassion, change, perfection, anger, boredom, and about 40 others, right? And so this is the last one of the book, and this is joy. I want to end with this, because it's actually, she calls it joy, but when I read this, I hear all of the Brahmavihara, I hear metta, I hear compassion, I hear joy, I hear equanimity, much the way that we talk about when each of these is mature, they include the other three. It's a very beautiful teaching. So I'll end with this. Joy drinks pure water. She has sat with the dying and attended many births. She denies nothing. She is in love with life, all of it, the sun and the rain and the rainbow. She rides horses at Half Moon Bay under the October moon. She climbs mountains. She sings in the hills. She jumps from the hot spring to the cold stream without hesitation. Although joy is spontaneous, she is immensely patient. She does not need to rush. She knows that there are obstacles on every path and that every moment is the perfect moment. She is not concerned with success or failure or how to make things permanent. At times, joy is elusive. She seems to disappear even as we approach her. I see her standing on a ridge covered with oak trees and suddenly the distance between us feels enormous. I am overwhelmed and I wonder if the effort to reach her is worth it. Yet she waits for us. 
her desire to walk with us is as great as our longing to accompany her. So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll, um, we'll continue with our focus on guidance for the second half of the retreat tomorrow morning. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.